It was a very cruel scene, executed in an unusual manner. Hey, Cruel Coven. Hey there, freaks. <laughs> this is Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. I'm Tori. I'm Katie. <laughs> Welcome to the shit show. <laughs> Honestly, though. Yeah. I can't describe to you guys, Coven, how terrible we are at this. Right before we hit record, you guys, Tori's like, okay, game face on. We're ready to go. Get it out of your system. Here we are. Worse than before. Worse. We're back at it again. Worse than ever before. Worse bitches. than ever before. Oh um, new tagline? I think so. I think so. Who wants a worse than ever before <laughs> sticker? We I do. Ju- we just keep getting worse. <laughs> okay. My God. You're here for a reason. So. Oh, you guys are the ones who press fucking play. You guys are the ones who keep coming back every Thursday. Okay. We're not forcing your hand. No, but please don't leave. No. Okay, so guys, all of you listening, there's two of you who tweet me <laughs> out of all of you. And you guys, there's a lot of you now. There really is. Uh, two of you tweet me. That's Chloe <laughs> and Angela. <laughs> See, she came up with this because she needs to be more active on our Twitter. Yeah. I feel like that this new installment, mm-hmm. this new two-second segment of the show will truly hold me accountable. So basically what I was talking to Katie about earlier was I was like, you know what we should do? And she was like, what? And I guess <laughs> I say that to her 10 times a day. Number one, it was this. And then it was a serial killer calendar. So yep. keep an eye yeah. out for that. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Number one was I was like, hey, Katie, you know what we should do? And we voice memo because we're weird. And I don't know when that started. I don't know, but it's easier than it's typing. It's so much easier. My thumbs mm-hmm. have gotten fat because <laughs> I don't type anymore. Um. Anyway, I was like, hey, Katie, we should start doing like randomly tweet us weird shit. Like what's happening to you? What did I say? I want to read my tweet because I'm sure it was dumb. <laughs> um. Here's how I said it on the tweeter. We are going to start doing tweet shout outs, all in all caps, in our <laughs> like main a carnival episodes. game. <laughs> yeah. Step right two, up. Two tickets, please. Tweet shout outs. In our main episodes on Thursdays. Tweet me your weird shit. What you ate for breakfast. How you told some dummy off for being a loser. I want to <laughs> hear it. And guess who replied? Our favorite, Chloe Rose. Let me just tell you what she did today. Okay. Okay. Have you read it? You don't go on there often. No, I haven't read it. I don't, I didn't look at it. Okay. So Chloe tweeted. Today at the grocery store, a wrinkly old man in a MAGA hat gave me a dirty look about my blue hair. Have you seen her hair? I did. I saw it's it on Instagram. so pretty. It's gorgeous, yeah. Chloe. I love it. Anyway, gave me a dirty look about my blue hair and my filter just wasn't on. So I told him to not look at me if he didn't like what he saw <laughs> and back the fuck out of my way. Yes. That's my girl. But you guys, if you have a tweeter, get on it, even if it's just to talk to me. Because I'm really only on it just to talk to you. So right. we have something in common. Whatever you feel like. Just just shout it out. Headlines? All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. You ready for a headline? Ooh, I'm ready I've for got a good one. something for you. <laughs> this is a COVID story, but it's a feel-good COVID story. Okay. This is from UPI.com. Two sisters from Nebraska who hadn't seen each other in over 50 years wow. were reunited because of COVID-19. Bev Boro, who's 53, she's a medication aide at a hospital in Nebraska. She was assigned her patient list for the day, and a name on it jumped out at her, Doris Crippen. 
73 years old. Doris had been in the hospital with COVID and a broken arm. Bev says that Doris is hard of hearing, so she used a, um, a whiteboard to communicate with her, and they figured out that they had the same father. Oh! Um, they have different mothers. They were not raised together. Bev was put into foster care as an infant before she was adopted. Doris was their father's firstborn of 10 children with three different mothers. And Bev was the youngest. Wow. Apparently, Bev and Doris, they knew each other's names. They'd always known who all of their siblings were, but mm-hmm. they never met. Um, and they couldn't find any, like, contact information for each other. You know, That's so strange with social media, but they're older, too. Yeah, they just know? couldn't, like, they couldn't figure out how to, how to connect. Doris says now that getting COVID turned out to be a blessing. Oh. <laughs> and she's the happiest person in the world. Doris. So I'm pretty sure she's recovering, obviously. Doris. Isn't that sweet? Doris is such a 70-something-year-old yes. woman named, too. I know. Isn't that cute? Yeah, that's so freaking cute. Like, a good thing came out of COVID for fucking once. For once. My God. I love that. So this is from the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, It says, and this is a quote, obviously, suspect arrested in 1993 homicide cold case, end quote. So it says, and this is in Washington, quote, Detectives from the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office Major Crimes Unit, isn't that, doesn't that just sound fancy, Mm -hmm. arrested a 62-year-old man for the April 1993 murder of 15-year-old Melissa Mm. Lee. Alan Edward Dean was taken into custody without incident at 5 p.m. on Tuesday, July 28, 2020, near his home. Isn't that just, I can't believe that all of these are like coming out of the woodwork now. I love it. So he was booked on one count of first degree murder and one count of first degree kidnapping for the 1993 kidnapping and killing of the 15 year old girl. Now, the law enforcement is still continuing to like gather all of the evidence and like talk to key witnesses and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, They are asking, though people that are within that area to come forward with information. So I'm going to read what they're asking for. Okay. Anyone who currently knows Dean, previously knew Dean, or knew of his activities in or around 1993, he would have been 35 years old at the time of the murder. Anyone who recognizes Dean from the attached photo, which is on a, on a post that we'll share. This is a photo of him around the time of the killing in 1993 and or from the more recent photo of him, which is also here. Dated, communicated with, or has any information regarding Dean around 1993 using a night talk line. Oh. Yeah, he used a fake name of Mike or sometimes Michael. And then also anyone who has any information regarding Dean having access to chemicals, like certain chemicals, around the Mm -hmm. time that the crimes were committed. Oh, okay. They're basically, I think what they're trying to do is gather as much as they possibly fucking can on this guy. Yeah. Because they know that it's hard, you know, Mm -hmm. to convict these people this with this much time that has passed. So how did they end up finding him? Was it the DNA? Yeah. So I'll read a quote here. Okay. Okay. Successful identification of Dean was established with assistance from Parabon Nanolabs, Parabon, a DNA technology company in Virginia that performed genetic genealogy analysis for the case. Isn't that fucking awesome? Uh, To continue the quote, a digital file containing DNA genotype data derived from evidence at the crime scene was uploaded to a public genetic genealogy website and promising matches were found for multiple of the suspect's relatives. Fuck. After Parabon's genealogist deduced Dean's identity, detectives subsequently acquired an abandoned DNA sample from a cigarette butt. It's always a fucking cigarette butt. 
Mm-hmm. Washington State Patrol's crime lab confirmed that it positively matched the DNA profile from the crime scene evidence. This is the third arrest of a murder suspect in Snohomish County that involved assistance from Parabon. Wow. Isn't that crazy? I don't know how many of you are from Snohomish County, and if you are, I'm so sorry that I'm probably butchering that name. <laughs> um, it looks like Snohomish it does. to me. <laughs> We will leave the number that you can call if you have any idea what the fuck we're talking about yeah. in the description. And we'll also put it on our on our page um, on Thursday when this episode airs. And all of that information was from the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office Facebook page. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. Did you see the thing about Susan Powell? Susan Powell's sons, the little boys. Do you remember that case? That name sounds very familiar so to me. The dad Is that the one where the dad... Yeah. Killed her and they went out camping. They, okay. He so said they went camping in the middle of the night. It was the murder suicide. So he had the little boys. So the mom had been missing. He had the little boys in the house. Yes. The he, they got worker, him from the social try, worker. Yeah. Well, the boys' grandparents, mom's side, they were awarded $98 million. Wow. For, for the wrongful, yeah, from the state. Good. Mm-hmm. That's fucking awesome. So I know awesome. that's like, that's a pretty big case that's, in the true crime world. So I thought I'd yeah, throw that, that in there. Um, case was fucking disgusting it's heartbreaking i they released a 911 call of the social worker calling 911 yes. it's terrifying can you imagine how much therapy she needs yeah god yeah absolutely can't even imagine and they still haven't found susan's body from right. what i know i haven't seen any updates about that no so. neither have i fucking sad dude so we have some qotds we do from facebook I just posted to get some fresh QOTs. You guys come through, man. You come through quick. Honestly, because I posted that 27 minutes ago, but within like the first two minutes, we had like seven. Hey. Now, okay, so we have a few. One of the first ones that I'm just looking as I'm scrolling is what is your favorite Halloween costume from the past from Miss Angela, who we love? I do remember being Britney Spears from I don't remember Baby that. One More Time when I was too old to trick or treat. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember <laughs> but that. But I walked around fucking Mazan, Illinois mm-hmm. with my braids. Mm-hmm. What about you? Can um, you think of any? My very first one that I remember is Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. I was Dorothy once. And too. Tyler was the lion. Yeah. So fitting. Um, but just a couple years ago, I was Harley Quinn and I feel like I just fucking oh, yeah. loved that. You were. I was just a good Harley Quinn. <laughs> if I'll look for pictures. I don't know if I still have them, but we had oh. to dress. And the only reason that I was that was because we had to dress up like as a theme mm-hmm. for like this work conference that we went to. I had the wig and everything. And let me yeah. just tell you, I would not make a good blonde. Okay. <laughs> no, not with your eyebrows, honey. No, 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 no. <laughs> I remember when you had your annual Halloween bash, mm-hmm. and it was a dead celebrity theme, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I was the only motherfucking person who came as a dead celebrity because nobody can follow directions, apparently. No, and I even had a fucking invitation. Yeah. You and didn't you were, even dress no, up like a dead I, celebrity. I think because Rory and I got into a fight that day, and I was like, <laughs> fuck it. But you were Amy Winehouse. I was Amy Winehouse. Yeah. And I thought it was pretty decent. Yeah, I thought I you, I, it looked good. Fat black cat eye the and everything. The ring. Did you do the yeah. freckle mole thing? I did. Yeah. Yeah. This past year, I was just a lady with a pregnant belly. <laughs> yeah. like, and so I'm kind of excited to see what I'll be this year. I know. Hopefully COVID will just be a thing of the past. I if know. If not, me and Tanner can just come and we, me and you can get drunk and uh, yes. let them talk about whatever men Whatever talk about. the hell. The unions, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, okay, so that was from Angela, who we love. We love you, Angela. You are fabulous. Love you, Ange. Autumn said, if you were a hit woman, how much would you charge to kill someone? I think about this question several times a week. Really, Autumn? <laughs> my, my, my. Uh, that doesn't surprise me coming from Autumn. I haven't watched enough movies about that stuff because that's where I get, you know, all of my knowledge. So I don't know what the going rate is. I don't know what the going rate is either. I don't know what the ballpark is. And I think that that is the key to success. <laughs> because if you try and go, like, if you try and lowball, obviously you're going to just have to kill everybody right. for nothing, for right. pennies. You're gonna, but you, you're going to have a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. And if you try and highball, they're going to be like, get the fuck out of here. Right. Are you a cop? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you might just get, get shot on the spot. You a fucking cop? Yeah. I would say, I don't know, I'm Autumn. Gonna, okay, Autumn, you got to tell me your answer. Yeah, Autumn. At least 50, right? I was going to say 20 to 25K. Oh my God, no, I think 50 would be my, my fucking bottom line. I do good work. I would do real <laughs> nice work too, but I would also have to know that they're a bad person. Yeah, I don't think that you get they're to know like, that though. I don't think you get to know anything about them. I would study them. Yeah, on and your if, own. If, 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 if And here's the thing, the I would require a deposit... Them, the more you hang around them, a deposit. notice you hanging around them. A wig, a <sighs> rental car, a fake ID, and sunglasses. Okay. I don't know. I'm I, I'm gonna stick with my twenty to twenty five k. All right. So today we're teaming up again. Who? Yeah. Who are we doing today, Katie? Who are we gonna we're, be teaming up to talk about? We're talking about the co-ed killer, Ed, mommy issues, Kemper. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You guys asked for it, and we are delivering. We are talking about Ed, motherfucking Kemper, Katie on the kick drum. Come, come. <laughs> he fascinates me. Right. I think it's because of like how candid he is about everything that he's done. He knows what he did was wrong. He knew it was wrong when he was doing it. Yep. Most serial killers do. They mm -hmm. know it. They, they but know. they at least have but, enough sense to act like they don't. Yeah, he admits it. He'll talk all fucking day long about how much he didn't want to be doing it. He doesn't put up this like facade of trying to be a scary monster or deny any of it. A lot of killers are so ashamed that they don't even say a word. Yep. You know what I mean? Ed will tell you anything in extravagant detail. Anything you want to know. And very like cool articulate calm yeah collected like mm -hmm. and so fucking smart that it's just disgusting mm -hmm. and it doesn't make him better in any way shape or form no. because he is a scary monster right and he is manipulative he does shift a lot of the blame off of himself but there's a reason why he was one of the first serial killers formally interviewed by the fbi right by sirs john douglas and robert Ressler. yeah honestly like if you just saw Ed and you guys can look up the millions of fucking interviews that are out there mm -hmm. and if you just saw him like sitting at a McDonald's talking with his guy gang yeah sipping on coffee with his mustache like <laughs> the, the fucking stash yeah you would just think that he was like this normal fucking dude yeah and we'll get into that because he mm -hmm. he fooled a lot of fucking people yeah Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18th 1948 to Clarnell and Edmund Kemper II in Burbank California Ed There's a lot of weird shit in California. California, you're fucking weird. Honestly. I like you. I mean, sometimes. But <laughs> That's you're, what I you're said about Florida. Well, Florida's never going to be redeemable <laughs> to me. <laughs> Ed was their middle child. He had an older sister, Susan, and a younger sister, Alan. 
Now, Ed in no way had a normal childhood. As most serial killers don't. Yeah. In his very early years, he'd watch his mom and his dad fight and bicker and yell at each other just constantly. Clarnell would berate Dad Ed to no end. She constantly bitched because he didn't make enough money as an electrician. Dad Ed had served in World War II and went on to test nuclear weapons before becoming an electrician. And it's reported that he said suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. Wow. Yeah. Like, that's saying something, <laughs> I think. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> She'd just scream at him and belittle him. And eventually, when little Ed was nine, Dad Ed couldn't take her anymore, and he took off leaving the kids with Clarnell. After the divorce, Clarnell moved Ed and his sisters to Helena, Montana. Shit starts to get really bad for Ed now because it seems like his mom just set her sights and like the focus of her rage onto him now right um and ed was close with his dad him leaving the family moving to another state away from the only home he ever knew devastated him and then just think about like being a little boy Mm -hmm. and like you know how much little boys love and look up to their dads yeah you know Mm -hmm. what i mean and and it's so awful when they don't have that that father figure right and now to have it and then it just be stripped away Mm -hmm. now ed said in later interviews that being the only boy in the family that he was just a constant reminder for his mom of her failed marriage and everything that was wrong with her life with their lives right clarnell was a severe alcoholic and it's also said that she suffered from borderline personality disorder i don't know if that's just from observations people i don't know yeah and they say that that was the cause of her rage but i also sensed with my spidey senses that she might have been really really like overly religious oh wow yeah and i say this because so clarnell had this thought in her mind that it was inappropriate for Ed to share a bedroom with his sisters. She thought that he was capable, at a very young age still, of molesting them or hurting them. She refused to coddle him. She refused to show him any affection because she was afraid that it might turn him gay. Oh, I feel like, fuck off, Mm -hmm. Clarnell. So she banished Ed to the basement. He had to sleep down there in this dank, dirty, musty basement While mom and his sisters slept upstairs in the comfort of their bedrooms, he described hearing rats running around at night and how scared he was of them. He basically thought he was being banished to hell. Little boys don't get these thoughts like right. that unless they're coming from their their parents. Right. The only light source he had down there was the flame from the furnace. He said he'd stare at that light as the furnace made a hissing noise. He thought, this is hell. This is Satan. He said, quote, I was making a bargain with demonic forces that I was convinced were going to consume me and somehow do me in. It seems like, at least to me in any way, that Clarnell preached at him a lot and used religion as an excuse for feelings that she didn't want to feel or didn't know how to deal with. Clearly, I'm not an expert on that shit. But it seems to me that religion played a role in her controlling at least him, if not his sisters, too. I remember hearing, this was like before we did our research on this, but like Mm -hmm. a while back, I remember him talking about that in an interview and how he said that he just could not, you know, being a little boy, Mm -hmm. he just could not understand why his mom and his sisters got to go up to heaven every night yeah and like Mm -hmm. how you said and he was banished to hell and i just remember like thinking in my mind like little ed before Mm -hmm. he did all of the these heinous crimes like how scary 
and sad and like alone yeah he must have been like Mm -hmm. and this is me sympathizing with a baby so not a lot is known about how clarnell treated the girls we just don't know yeah um we get the sense that their treatment was better than ed's at the very least and like i said he was the boy he was the reminder of the husband who left her and she belittles him she's domineering she tells him over and over that he's dumb he's stupid he's never going to amount to anything she humiliates him she would constantly just poke Mm -hmm. poke poke yep there were however a few instances where susan his big sister got a little weird herself it's reported that ed had come close to death a few times himself as a kid and both times involved susan oh she tried pushing him in front of an oncoming train once oh okay he also came close to drowning after she pushed him into the deep end of a pool without warning so we don't know the circumstances around these incidents um we don't know if she was trying to get rid of him was she just being like um a bully child did she feel threatened by him and was it warranted not that that's warranted but you know what i mean did she feel like it was right did did the mom yeah or was it because of the things that their mom was saying about it right yeah we'll never know so ed turns out to be a big boy he turns out to be like a really big boy Mm -hmm. and he was growing really really fast clarnell even used that against him She'd tell him that his size was unsettling. It made him a weirdo, that no woman would ever want him because he was going to turn out just like his father, whom he admired. So hearing that as a boy, you're going to turn out just like him, wondering why that's a bad thing. Right. You know what I mean? Just all of this abusive, horrible shit. So John Douglas, one of the first FBI profilers, he even said if mom wasn't there, he wouldn't have been a serial killer. You can counter that with the fact that people grow up way worse than that. Yeah. And don't kill people. Right. But obviously it was a factor for his case. Yeah. And he blames his mother. Very much so. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ed would coerce his sisters into playing games like gas chamber and electric chair, you know as you do they would basically reenact his death they'd strap him to a chair like he wanted them to and his sister would pretend to push a button and ed would flail around like he was being electrocuted to death so he's starting with the death oriented fantasies here he'd steal his sister's dolls he would cut off their heads their arms their legs and very quickly at still a very young age it escalates to animal cruelty This is one of the most, if not the most, telling signs of future violence. I'm sure that we all know that, but what I didn't know is that the FBI actually tracks animal violence. Oh, I didn't know that. the cases and the people who commit it, because it's that much of a precursor. So trigger warning here for animal cruelty. Right now, it's starting. Okay. Okay. The family's cats were his victims. Oh. In a later interview, he says that he buried a cat alive, dug it back up after it was dead, cut off its head, put its head on a stake. Naturally. He later said that he felt so much pride and power over lying to his family about what happened to the cat. So when he was 13, Ed killed another family cat with a machete, chopped its body up into pieces, and hid the body in his closet, where his mom later found it. I wonder how that conversation went. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she didn't think it was caused to get help for him, though. That's oh God, for no. fucking sure. No, nope, we weren't going to do that. My name is Clarnell, and I won't be getting my nope. son therapy. Nope. He'd go on to say that he did that because the cat loved his sister more than him. Ed reportedly said that he wanted to kiss one of his teachers. He had a oh. crush on her. Mm-hmm. He'd watch her outside of her window 
Oh, it, oh, mm-hmm. oh, With, so like, his stalker. dad's gun. Yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Um, but he wanted to kiss her, and in order to do that, he'd have to kill her, he said. Even though he was a big boy, he had this strange fear of being physically hurt by other boys at school. And he just could not keep a friendship with anyone. He desperately wanted a girlfriend, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't even bring himself to, like, attempt to talk to a girl. Nothing. In a later interview, he said he knew he was developing his, like, violence. Mm -hmm. And he said, quote, When I was in school, I was called a chronic daydreamer, and I saw a counselor twice during junior high and high school. They didn't ask me a lot of questions about myself, and that was probably the most violent fantasy time I was off into. End quote. And it's not like he was just going to give that information up willingly. Like, they needed to ask the correct question. They just, and talk to and his they goddamn mother. Yeah. At the age of 14, Ed ran from his mom's house and went to go find his dad in L.A. Oh. He, he, the kid wanted his dad. Yeah. He wanted his dad. Yep. Um, so he found his dad, and he did stay with him for a short time, but dad had remarried. He had a new stepson. Like, could you? Yeah. God. And Ed being there made it really hard for him to enjoy his new life and pretend he didn't leave his whole ass family behind. Oh, yeah. I imagine mm-hmm. so. Ed's dad and stepmom felt something was off with him. His behavior was threatening to them. And they found themselves like, what the fuck are we going to do with him? Another blow for Ed. He was rejected once again. I just hate that Mm -hmm. because it's like with his mom, she's reminded of, you know, her past and and she takes it out on him. He he never got any sort of affection or love or anything from her. And the exact same with his his dad, you Mm -hmm. know. Ed reminds his dad mm-hmm. of his whole ass family, yeah. as you put it. Mm-hmm. And so neither of them want anything to do with them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he was sent to live with his grandparents, Maud and Edmund Kemper the first. The original. The, the original Ed. I actually put that. The original <laughs> Ed. The OE. These were his paternal grandparents, obviously. And they lived in the mountains of North Fork, California. So it's 1964. Ed is 15. He's sent to this remote area, a 17-acre farm, and he was not happy to be there. But he kind of, like, settled in, as, you know, as much as he could. He started school at Sierra Joint Union High School in Toll House, California. His teachers remember that he kind of just blended right in. He was shy. He got average grades. He didn't get into trouble. He didn't draw any attention to himself besides the attention that couldn't he couldn't prevent because of his size right you know how fucking kids are at 15 he was already six foot seven and 173 pounds wow yeah at 15 at 15 years old yeah so the situation at his new home was tense It, it was bearable at the very least but it wasn't great Maud and original ed did be did begin to see what both his mom and dad meant when they mentioned his strange behavior. But they figured if they kept him busy enough, things would be fine. Ed really loved his grandpa. He admired him. He looked up to him. It's like he finally had this father figure who would give him the time of day. Right. Maud, however, seemed to remind him of his mother and all the hatred he harbored for her. Maud was controlling too, according to Ed. Everyone seems controlling when you're 15 and you can't do yeah, fucking right. shit for yourself. You know what I right. mean? So who knows? But he said she constantly nagged at him. She verbally abused him just like his mom. But grandpa gave him a gun, a 22 rifle. Why not? Yeah. And Ed took his aggressions out on gophers and rabbits. He was warned not to shoot the birds, but he did anyway. And when the school year ended, he was sent back to his mother. 
He lasted two weeks there, back in Helena, before being sent back to the farm. Mom's like, no. I don't want Go him. back, yeah. I don't want to deal with mm-hmm. him. You take him. Yep. Can you imagine being that way to someone that you birthed out your vagina? No. Or out your belly, you know, no. whatever, however you do it. Yeah. <laughs> like something that grew inside of you. Yeah. God. Mm-hmm. So when he got back, Maud noticed that any progress he'd previously made at the farm was completely gone. He'd regressed back to being depressed, sullen, pessimistic. Grandma was nagging. And while he loved Grandpa, Grandpa was boring to Ed. <laughs> God <laughs> damn it, original Ed. Boring Grandpa, OE. Um, he just liked to sit around and yep. play dominoes. Yeah, fuck. School was still out. It was still summertime. And he was just always there at the farm. He didn't have friends. He, you know, he didn't have anything. And his violent fantasies took over once again. He would imagine his grandma sitting inside of their outhouse while he shot round after round into the wooden door. He aimed his rifle at her from far away without her knowing and thought about what it would feel like to shoot her. Maud was getting nervous. They had another gun in the house, and it's reported that she'd take it with her when she left so Ed wouldn't get a hold of it. Oh, wow. Um, she told him to never touch it. Like, don't fucking touch the gun, Ed. I don't trust you. Don't do it. Um, she didn't trust him at all, and Ed took that as an insult, another insult. And all summer, he was just stewing and, you know, stewing, getting just worse and worse. The tension was growing, getting just thicker basking in her hatred. Yep. So, on August 27th, 1964, Maude was sitting at the kitchen table. And fun fact, I didn't know this, Maude was actually in the middle of writing a children's book. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. You're a fucking asshole to your grandson, Mm -hmm. and you write children's books. Or was she? We don't know. Yeah, that's just what they say. Um, I mean, who knows? But yeah, if she was that much of an asshole, yeah, writing a children's book kind of fucking sucks. So she was sitting there at the table looking at proofs of the images before it was published, but she could feel Ed's eyes on her. She looked up at him, and he was staring at her with this strange, unsettling expression. She told him to knock it off. Ed whistled for his dog. He picked up his right rifle and told Maud he was going out shooting. Maud reminded him not to shoot the fucking birds. Like <laughs> I've told you a hundred times, don't shoot the fucking birds. Ed left, but he stood outside and watched Maud from behind the screen door where she sat with her back to him. He brought up his rifle and he shot her once in the back of the head. She slumped over and then he fired two more shots into her back. He went inside, wrapped her head in a towel and dragged her body into a bedroom. A little while later, original Ed came back home from getting groceries, and while he was unloading the bags from the truck, Ed aimed his rifle at his head and shot him. Ed was horrified at himself. He had no idea what to do. He knew he'd never get away with what he'd done. He was panicking. His grandparents didn't go on vacation, so he couldn't use that excuse. Their friends would get suspicious. They'd come fucking looking. He knew he was not going to get away with it. So what he did next was shocking. He called his mom. Mm-hmm. Gave he gave a little ring a ding ding. I mean, to he's a fifteen year old kid. Yeah. You know, as much as you he hated her, I'm yeah. sure it's like, oh no, like, mom's uh... gonna know what the fuck to do. You know what I <laughs> yeah. mean? Um, she told him to call the cops, and he did. The police came to arrest him. They take him in for questioning, and Ed confessed really quickly. Obviously, he did it. When they asked why your grandpa, you liked him, he said, "I didn't want grandpa to see that his wife was dead." He would have had a heart attack. It's just so, like, strange how his brain was working. Either Mm -hmm. that or how he was, like, trying to cover up. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
So Ed was incarcerated in a juvenile hall while the California Youth Authority tried to figure out what the fuck they were going to do with him. While he was there, a court-appointed psychiatrist evaluated Ed and he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. They committed him to a Tescadero State Hospital just a few weeks before his 16th birthday. Ed said, quote, At the time, I was six foot seven and I weighed 173 pounds. They couldn't believe that I was under 16. The judge had appointed a psychiatrist. His report was that I was mentally ill, but that I was what he called, how did he put that? I was salvageable, that I should be treated and not punished. End quote. Since Atescadero was a state hospital, people who were deemed criminally insane could be sent there. It was a mental health facility. It was not a prison. They didn't have like armed guards or anything like that. They focused on treatment and rehab, but there were a lot of severely mentally ill patients who had done horrible things in the midst of a psychotic break or a psychotic episode. That wasn't Ed, though. They did their own extensive testing and evaluations of him, and they realized that he did not exhibit any any of the symptoms of a paranoid schizophrenic. The test given to him showed that he had, quote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking. But they looked at him and what he'd done, and they were like, well, he must have something wrong with him. You know, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> you don't just do that. Um, and he, he was instead diagnosed with having an aggressive type personality trait disturbance. So from ages 15 to 21, Ed was locked away in the hospital. These are super important formative years right. of anyone's life. He spent a lot of time alone. He'd never had a real friend, never had a girlfriend. He spent time masturbating like several times a day Oh boy! to these fantasies about what he wanted to do to his mother or to other women. It was sexually arousing to him. It's um, not shocking. <laughs> right. Violence and sex kind of fused together to him in his mind. He was in there with people who had done horrific things and they swapped stories. It was normal for them to be hearing this stuff all the right. time. Ed's impressionable. You know, he's a young teenager. His brain is literally developing in this environment. Right. He also took note of what these people had done wrong, how they'd gotten caught. They left witnesses. They left evidence behind. They attacked people that they knew. And he was like bookmarking all of these things. But he was really good at hiding this while he was inside the hospital. Mm -hmm. He was a model patient. He kept his violent sexual fantasies from the doctors. Of course, he's not going to tell them about that. Right. He did what he was told. He worked hard. He learned by watching and listening what he needed to do and say so that they'd think he was recovered. He'd memorize Bible verses. He'd say he'd been converted. Oh. He'd found God. In a hopeless Because he knew they wanted to hear it. During testing inside, they found that Ed was very smart. His IQ was 145. Now, the average IQ in the U.S. is between 90 and 100. 145 is considered a genius. Mm -hmm. Ed said, quote, I wasn't aware of any intelligence. I was being called stupid frequently, and unfortunately, it was sinking in. He actually thought he was, these are his words, he thought he was a, quote, slow person. Wow. This whole time. And it's fucking sad to me. Yeah. Because, like, can you imagine the things that he could have done right. in life if, if he'd been given a sliver of a chance right. or had a normal childhood? So 
So since Ed was friendly and likable, they let him help out inside the hospital. He was kind of like a secretary in the offices. They even let him administer tests to other patients. And he loved it. Mm -hmm. Because of this, he was able to memorize the answers to those tests or what they wanted to see on the tests. And he passed his vinyl exam with flying colors. Of course he did. While he never did take full responsibility for murdering his grandparents, he maintained that what he did was out of his control. He pretty much faked being the perfect, like, reformed patient. He was released and declared sane at the age of 21. Mm -hmm. Not a single one of them thought he was a danger to himself or others, but when they paroled him, there was a condition. They forced him to move in with his mother. Clarnell. And now Tori's taking over this rodeo. She's hopping on her bull. She's getting her notes ready. She's going to put one hand in the air. Could you the even rest like of the podcast? Fucking picture that. It's disgusting. I was picturing it while I was saying it because that's how I think. Okay. Tori here. Fuck you. Okay. So, like Katie said, he's 21. It's 1969, and Ed is released, and his juvenile record was expunged. So Ed is back living with Clarnell, like Katie said. He ends up getting a job, and he is actually just doing all of the things that he needs to do. He's flying under the radar. He's keeping up with his probationary check-ins. He knew exactly what to say and what to do to make sure that his probation officer did not suspect that he was up to anything. And that is the exact opposite of what happened. The Department of Transportation hired him in 1971. It was his dream to be a police officer, but sadly for Ed, he was too tall to be a police officer. Ed Kemper was six foot nine and 300 pounds at this point, which is like fucking unheard of. It's like a damn like tree. Yeah, you do not see people who are six foot nine, no. 300 pounds. No, the boy is a tree. Yeah, and when you hear like 300 pounds, you're thinking, oh, wow, he's a big boy. But he didn't look like a big boy like that. No, because he was so damn tall. Yeah, it was yeah. so fucking stretched out. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he would have been like 200 pounds, he would have looked like a, like a yeah. dying man. Right. You know? <laughs> Apparently... And I never knew this until like years ago now when I was doing research on Ed Kemper for something else. And um, that's when I found out that there were even restrictions with height and weight to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it makes sense to a point that they want you to be in really great physical shape because you're going to have to be running around after these criminals. Right. But I never knew that there was a fucking height limit on them. I did not know that. So despite being unable to become a police officer, he still hung out with a lot of the cops at a few Santa Cruz bars. And he actually bought a motorcycle to be more (laughs) cop-like. One of the main bars that he frequented to hang out with the cops was called the Jury Room Bar. Which is just fitting. Right. That's kind of lame, guys. Like, come on. <laughs> he basically, basically, he just would go frequent the bar after a long, hard day at work. Mm-hmm. And he'd sit around the bar and he would just bullshit with all the police officers. Now, these police officers did not know that good old Ed murdered his grandparents. It was expunged, as I said, and it isn't exactly something that you just bring up in casual conversation, let alone casual conversation with the police officer. And he's too smart for that. Right. You know, he loved talking. 
Ed was just a fucking talker, talking about this and talking about that. He would hang out with the officers. He would talk about guns and knives and police procedurals. He loved hearing about the different things that they did, um, like the different things that they saw out on the road that day. He loved to hear about just everything, mm-hmm. every single thing that had to do with being a cop, the different procedures that they followed, the different like um, rules that they had to follow, the criminal aspect of things. He just soaked all of that in and loved every single fucking second of it. He ate that shit up. So, like we said, at his back living with good old Clarnell, his mother, in Santa Cruz, California. Clarnell worked at UCSC, which was University of California, Santa Cruz, as an admin member. And the moment Ed moved back in with her, the arguing, the fighting, and the bickering restarted like it had never fucking ended. That flame was still going. Mm-hmm. She just started right back fucking up, belittling Ed again, just like she did when he was a little boy. And it just completely fucking triggered him. It made this like deep, dark fire within him light back up. Mm-hmm. It's really funny that you just said it never I went know. out. <laughs> we were just not on the same page when we were oh, writing these God. things. I think it's very important to note now, before I start this next part, that serial killers were very talked about and very common and very publicized in the 70s, mm-hmm. especially in the Santa Cruz area. Yeah. You have all of these people who are like 50, 60, 70, 80 years old now who were like, back in my day, we never had these problems. But well, yes, they do. Did. And they remember this was so talked yeah. about. Mm-hmm. This was the same area, Santa Cruz, the Santa Cruz area. Mm-hmm. This is where John Frazier, David Carpenter, Mansfield and Herbert Mullins were also killing people at this exact same time. Mm -hmm. Santa Cruz was dubbed the murder capital of the world by the media and the press, and these killings were super fucking publicized. Yeah. Ed ended up moving closer to San Francisco to Alameda and shared an apartment with his friend, which is weird because he never fucking had friends before. Even though he didn't live with Clarnell anymore, she would still call him and berate him like through the phone line. It was just, like, not enough for her to belittle him when he was younger, belittle him when he came back and lived with her. Mm -hmm. Now he's gone, and she still has to do it. Yeah. So now, big Ed. (laughs) Six foot nine, 300 pound Ed. Picture him on a fucking motorcycle, number one. He's just cruising around the city on his motorcycle, and he gets into an accident. He actually gets into a couple. There's one where he hurts his head, one where he hurts his arm. For one of them, he ended up getting a $15,000 settlement. And he ended up buying a new vehicle with that settlement because obviously he couldn't drive around on the motorcycle anymore. Decent decent settlement. Yeah. So the new vehicle that he bought was one that looked like an unmarked police car, a Ford Galaxy. What do you know? Mm-hmm. What do you know, Joe? He then proceeded to put blankets and guns in his vehicle, like in the trunk, and like those big antenna things. He just wanted it to look like a police car as much as possible. He even put one of those radio things in it. Yeah. But you would think now, like, oh, here, okay, it's Ed Kemper. He gets his police car lookalike. He's going to go out in the town. He's going to start his murders. But no. He didn't start his murders. I'm holding up my finger. (laughs) Instead, he spent over an entire year doing his research. 
it's the 70s and hitchhiking is a norm despite the serial killers being so widely talked about right it was just a normal method of transportation so ed decided for his research he would start giving hitchhikers rides Mm -hmm. seems like just a nice thing you know just transporting the hitchhikers it wasn't he studied the women that he picked up he would kind of like throw different things out there and see how the different women would reply and like their body language and how they would act after he said certain things. For over an entire year, he basically just trained for his upcoming murders. I know that's a weird way to put it, but that's what it was. All of the women that he picked up and this estimated by him, it was over 150 women that he picked up over the course of that year, a little bit longer. They got to their destination safely, unharmed, and untouched, which shows that he can exhibit restraint. Yeah. Could you imagine, like, after it's all said and done, thinking back, knowing that you got a ride from him? Right. Now, all of this changed on May 7th of 1972. Ed decided he's not going to just take hitchhikers home anymore. He flipped his murder switch and started killing. When asked later on, Ed said that he chose to go after young women, co-eds because quote they represented what my mother liked what she coveted what was important to her i was destroying it mm-hmm. end quote which says a lot yeah it, it, it just that was a long time coming for him mm-hmm. and it's disgusting yeah. but it's true now the first two women that ed picked up after he decided he was going to start killing women were mary ann pesh and anita luchessa now they were hitchhiking near berkeley university so mary ann and anita were friends and they were going to stanford and decided to hitchhike with ed he looked like a nice fella when the women got into his car ed would act like the passenger door didn't shut all the way so he would just politely reach over the women to quote shut the door but he was actually covertly placing a chapstick tube behind the latch of the door so when the women tried to get out the latch stuck and they couldn't get out i feel like this really says how much he looked into this like over like over a fucking year yeah you know what i mean but Mm. you know like it's just yeah you know what i mean but you know (laughs) it's just so fascinating right he was you know going what I mean? he was going to do it there was no stopping him so ed drove the two women to a very remote area he made anita get into the trunk of the ford galaxy and he tried to strangle marianne pesh but he was unsuccessful ed had later said that he thought it would be something really quick and easy but it wasn't mm-hmm. so he decided to stab her multiple times instead and then he proceeded to cut her throat and then he went to the trunk where Anita was and he stabbed her to death as well. He said something about when he opened the trunk and saw her. He's like, well, her her roommate's dead in my back seat. Right. I have to kill her. Right. I have to kill her now. He, he didn't want her to see her friend dead. So he it's used, weird. basically he used another excuse to be like, oh, this is why I had to kill this yeah. person because I was doing them a favor. Yeah. Basically is how mm-hmm. he put it. Ed talked about this later on and it just like we said earlier, like he was just so in control and cool and calm and and collected and straight to the point Mm -hmm. very like matter of fact yeah ed talked about holding the heads in his hands like after he killed them right and he said that he felt like he was going insane but then since he knew enough to think that he was going insane he knew that it wasn't insane Mm -hmm. because a truly insane person wouldn't know that it was insane right so he just kind of like check marked that box and was like oh Mm -hmm. nope not insane yep You were insane, Ed. I just want to let you know. He then went on and said Mary Ann was an active participant in her death, which I fucking hated. Like, that rubbed me so 
fucking wrong. Yeah, like she was there. Mm-hmm. Like she was under the, you picked her up under the pretense you were going to be driving her somewhere. Right. On August 15th of that year, obviously, Mary Ann's head was found in a ravine, but Anita's remains were never found. Okay, so now he is no longer some, like, reformed, clinically insane, no longer man. Mm -hmm. He's back to murdering people. In September of that same year, Aiko Ko was hitchhiking to her ballet class because she missed her bus. And she just really wanted to get to her fucking ballet class. Mm -hmm. That's all. She actually started panicking. Like, she got into his car. She got a bad fucking vibe from him. And she was like, fuck, I need to get out of here because there's something up with this guy. He ended up driving her into a mountainous spot and fucking locked himself out of the car. (laughs) Like this smart fucking dude, this genius, Mm -hmm. locks himself out of the car. Now, he has a gun, right? But it's under the driver's seat. It's just so crazy thinking about how all of this could have ended. Yeah. If she would have known. But there's no way for her right. to She's know. She's like a 15 year old girl. Exactly. Like, no. But it's just like if she would have like seen it poking out right. or if like it had like slid. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if these minor details would just be altered a little bit. But sadly, Aiko ended up letting him back in because she was probably like, well, there's no way around it. I can't right. just keep him outside the car. Yeah. Or he talked her into, you know, yeah, talked her into it. With his smooth voice. He ended up putting tape over her mouth shortly after he, she unlocked the doors and then put his fingers in her nose. He ended up, which obviously didn't work to suffocate mm-hmm. her, yeah. but that's what he like thought. Like you would think after a year of studying people, right? but he really fucked these things up. Like he did, yeah. he was not, you would think that he would be so much. You'd think he'd be a smooth criminal. Right. But he wasn't a <laughs> no. smooth criminal. He had no idea what he was doing, yeah. which is weird. So when shoving his fingers up this poor girl's fucking nose didn't work he ended up strangling her with her own scarf which is just devastating so fucking sad i I just fucking hate him so much he then raped her deceased body and put her in his trunk so he's riding around with aiko's body deceased body in his trunk and he decides oh i'm a little thirsty I should probably stop for a beverage. And he actually went to the bar that he frequented with the cops and left her body in his trunk. Jesus. It's like he got off on it. I swear. He probably did. He was probably sitting there like with a hard dick, just like fucking loving that he had a deceased body. And by this time, the cops were already talking about this co-ed serial killer guy. I don't know if the media had already named him co-ed serial killer, but it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like, the cops that he was hanging out with were talking about, hey, there were two women who were who were murdered. There was like, you know, blah, blah, blah that's going on. Yeah. So he was probably sitting there like fucking getting off mm-hmm. that he was right under their fucking nose. Yeah. And I'm know? sure that he was probably just, he wanted to eavesdrop. He wanted to see if they yeah. had any leads. He wanted to know what they knew. If they, Yeah. If they had any suspects. If he needed to like change up how he was yeah. doing things you know yep. so shortly after this he ended up cutting off her head and hands and then he went into his parole meeting with her body parts in a bag in his car mm-hmm. he later disposed of her head and her hands in separate areas and the meeting that he attended was to actually get his records sealed he was sitting in front of a panel of psychiatrists and the psychiatrists were like, wow, this dude is doing so well and he's like so changed and mm-hmm. so reformed and whatever. And he just had a fucking head in his trunk. Yeah. It's insane to me that Ed Kemper could murder three women by this point, at least mm-hmm. to what he's what he's admitted to, and then sit in front of a panel of psychiatrists of all people and just fool them. Yeah. 
so Ed moves out of the roommate's like apartment or house or whatever, and he goes back to Clarnell again, and which is just fucking unfortunate for everyone involved, right? Because that place is just fucking toxic as hell. Mm-hmm. Not that I feel bad for him or anything, but it's said that a lot of the killings that he committed happened after big arguments with his mom. Yeah, he was killing her by killing them every single time. Now, in January of 1973, Ed went out and bought a 22 caliber pistol. He came upon Cindy Shaw, who was 19 years old. She was trying to get to a class at the college that she was attending, and he obviously was like, hey, I'll take you there. But what he ended up doing was shooting her with that 22 caliber pistol somewhere near Watsonville. And then he ended up taking her to his house that he lived in with Clarnell, and he hid her body in his room. It's said that he committed necrophilia with her body after his mom left for work the next day. Mm. He then dismembered Cindy's body, took some of her body parts to the ocean and threw her in. But her head, however, her head he didn't throw in the ocean. He ended up taking the bullet out of her head and then he buried it in the backyard directly facing his mom's bedroom window. And this is a direct quote from him. My mom always wanted people to look up to her, end quote. Isn't that disgusting? Yep. So this is one of the only bodies that he actually kept, and it's not really understood why. It's just said that he took a special interest in Cindy Shaw. Like, so he killed multiple people, but he only kept her head and placed it under the mom's window. They weren't really sure why Cindy, but that's who he ended up Mm -hmm. doing that with. Now, some of her remains were found just the next day. So, like, he threw them into the Pacific Ocean, and then they washed up right to shore. Mm -hmm. She was later identified by her fingerprints as well as they compared her chest x-ray to, like, she had just had a chest x-ray done not that long ago. Now, on February 5th of 1973, Ed and his mom get into another huge blowout and Ed just decides to leave. Like, he can't handle it. So he said that he wanted to go to the movies, but he never intended on going to the movies. His car had a parking sticker for the college because his mom worked there, and he knew in his mind that the next good-looking woman he found would be dead. At first, he picks up Rosalind. And then with her still in the car, he pulls over and picks up Alice while praying around the college. So now he has two girls in his car, two co-eds. Normally, Ed would just take his victims up into the mountains or go somewhere remote and then he would strangle them or suffocate them or shoot shoot them, whatever he chose on that occasion. But with Rosalind and Alice, he didn't even stop driving. He simply just turned around and shot Alice, who was in the backseat, and then turned to Rosalind and shot her at point-blank range. Alice did not die immediately, which is fucking heartbreaking. Mm. He then drove through the campus security area, like the gates, with these dead and dying bodies in his car. Then, with the dead and dying bodies in his car, he pulled over into a neighborhood and put the bodies in his trunk. Now, once back at home, or at Clarnell's home, he actually beheaded Rosalind and Alice in the trunk right out in the open. It was nighttime, but his neighbor's picture window was wide open, he said. It was around 11 p.m., and he knew it was totally possible to be seen, but he didn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. He was, like, standing there, hacking them up, the rest of their bodies, and he was getting off on it. Like, he says, he talks about it in interviews. Yeah, yeah. And he's just like, you know, I knew, I knew Mm -hmm. full well that there were people looking down at me across the street in their picture windows. And I was standing at my trunk hacking these dead bodies and I didn't care. Mm -hmm. He ended up disposing of those two bodies about 60 miles away from Clarnell's home. 
In March of 1973, hikers in San Mateo County found heads out on Highway 1 and called the police. This is kind of when the co-ed killer was born, like in the media, and they also called him the co-ed butcher. Some of the hitchhikers would actually bring up his murders and talk about the co-ed killer, like once they got into his car. And Ed said, quote, They didn't know it at the time, but they were getting a free ride. I couldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, end quote. He said that the hitchhikers would speculate about why the guy was doing it, compare notes with him. He just couldn't kill them. He just enjoyed talking about the crimes he was committing way too much. He said that he didn't want the conversations to end, and he liked that these women were talking about it, which is just fucking insane. I mean, it's not in the context, of course, that makes sense. Right. But that's just like, it's crazy. Now, ironically enough, the college started sending out these like mass announcements and bulletins to its students. They were telling them not to accept rides from people due to like all of this happening. The college uh, like announcement said, unless the car specifically has a campus sticker on it, do not trust them. Mm -hmm. Well, he had a fucking campus sticker. Yeah. So it was like exactly like everything was just fucking falling right into place for him. And it's maddening. Ed later said that there were two women who looked extremely like Marianne and Anita, the first two women that he killed. And in his mind, he was just thinking, like, it's got to stop. Like, this needs to stop. It has to end. And then, shortly after, in fact, just one week later, Ed committed one of his most shocking crimes. That was one week before I murdered my mother. I said, she's got to die. And I've got to die. Or girls like that are going to die. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party. She got soused. She came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that. I got, came out. I walked up to her bed. She's laying there reading a paperback. As many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. I looked at her and I said, no. I said, good night. And I knew I was going to kill her, you know. And I'm so cold, it's so hard. And that's the first time in 10 years I've looked at it that way. I mean, that intensely, that honestly. It hurts. Because I'm not a lizard, I'm not from under a rock. I came out of her vagina. See, came out of my mother, and in a rage, I went right back in. And there you have it. That is one of Ed's many interviews that he gave, and that is him just talking simply about his most shocking crime: mm-hmm. killing his own mother. I'll I'll just provide a little context here. So on Good Friday, another gigantic argument happens. And his mom goes out. She has her night of drinking. It's said before, like you said, that she was an alcoholic. She came home soused. <laughs> she was in bed reading a paperback, like he said. And her very last words to him were, quote, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now, end quote. Isn't that just like... That crushed him. Yeah. I think that that is why he just got emotional in the interview. Mm-hmm. That is what it was. Yeah. 
Um, and then at the end of that interview, you know, he says that again, like, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. And then he goes, I wish I had. Yeah. That's just, it's just, oh mm-hmm. my God. So we didn't get to this part of the interview because I was trying to kind of spare you, but I think you should know the details because that's what we're here to deliver you. Yeah. This is gruesome. So trigger warning, extreme violence. Ed goes into his mother's room and he beats her to death with a claw hammer. He then proceeds to dismember her body, just like he did with the other women that he had been killing around the city. He cut his mother's head off, committed necrophilia with her head. He then went as far as to put her head on the mantle, and then he used her head as a dartboard. He then ended up cutting out her tongue and her voice box, and he tried to put them down the garbage disposal, which is very telling, like... Of how much he fucking hated his mother. He was silencing her, literally. Right. He hated the way that she belittled him. And he cut out her fucking voice box because of it. Mm -hmm. Like, this was, a, according to Ed, this was a long time coming. She had been berating him and belittling him his entire life. And now she couldn't do that. When he tried to put her voice box and her tongue down the garbage disposal, it just shot right back up. It couldn't, like, handle the flesh, I guess. It couldn't handle the thickness. At a later interview, Ed said, quote, that seemed appropriate, end quote, in regards to the garbage disposal regurgitating his mother's voice mm-hmm. box. Quote, as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years, end quote. She had told Ed previously that she had not had sex with a man in seven years because of him. It's just like... Why Number one, why do you tell your son that? Right. Number two, why is that his problem? Yeah. Number three, he's like a grown adult. So that's not why you're not having sex with a man, Clarno. Mm-hmm. Anyways, <laughs> he then decided that he hadn't had enough yet. He invited Sally, his dead mother's friend, over. And he wanted her to come for dinner. He said he was going to surprise his mother. You know, like she was just going to show up mm-hmm. randomly. And once Sally was there, he ended up strangling her with the exact same scarf that he strangled Iko with. He then put her body in one of the closets and committed necrophilia with her body as well. The next day, he went to a rental car place. He dropped Sally's vehicle off and got into another one, and he took off east. He drove for about 18 hours, and he only stopped for gas and soda, according to him. Once he was in Colorado on April 23rd, he actually called the Santa Cruz police himself and confessed to being the co-ed killer. The thing is, they just simply didn't believe him. Mm -hmm. They were like, uh, sure, okay, Big Ed, whatever. (laughs) Eventually, the Santa Cruz police were working with the Colorado police that had jurisdiction over that area, and the police showed up to the payphone. They basically arrested him right by the payphone, and because of the fact that he was 6'9", he could literally put his hands on top of the payphone booth. Isn't that crazy? Which is just insane. So, I want to actually just put emphasis like on the actual proceedings Mm -hmm. because that's important so once he confessed he confessed to each of the eight murders he was arrested he was only 24 years old at this time yeah doesn't he seem like he'd be like 80 Mm -hmm. by now so he had killed at this at this point in this like stint he had killed six college-aged women his mother and sally his mother's best friend and then obviously from before the two grandparents so let's talk about sentencing 
Ed pleads innocent now by reason of insanity, despite confessing to all eight murders. The trial lasted all of five weeks. The police didn't have enough physical evidence to actually tie him to each of the eight murders, but they did have the fact that he originally confessed. He also led him to evidence, and he knew things that only the killer could possibly know, Mm -hmm. like things that they had never released to the media. The prosecution was able to play recordings and tapes of Ed Kemper speaking about the murders he committed in actual, like, detail, Mm -hmm. which obviously was incredibly incriminating as well. Ultimately, he was found guilty of first-degree murder after five hours of deliberation on all eight charges, and he is currently serving eight life sentences. The judge spoke and said that he recommended, now he couldn't, like, force force this, but he recommended that Ed never receive parole and that he would serve in prison for the rest of his natural life. And then he said to Ed, quote, may God have mercy on your soul, but I have to protect other people from people like you, Mm -hmm. end quote. At one of Ed's very first parole hearings, he said like something along the lines of like how he didn't think that there was a place in society for him Mm -hmm. and that he would basically just never be able to acclimate into society as a normal person which is probably not the best thing to say to like parole yeah you know if you ever intend on like trying to switch your stance on july 25th of 2017 which is pretty recent he had another parole hearing so i'm sure he's had several throughout Mm -hmm. throughout these years because that's a long ass time obviously parole was denied again ed now is trying to retract his confession he said that he was 24 at the time he was very immature when he pleaded guilty he thought that he was helping to build a case of insanity by pleading guilty all those years ago Mm. obviously though i mean it was denied nobody believes him right now while in prison ed has been described as an overly ideal prisoner a model prisoner if you will he was in charge of scheduling patient appointments for a while. He's won awards. He's narrated audiobooks, worked on projects for the blind. He's had a lot of work keeping him busy while behind bars. Mm-hmm. Here's a fun fact. At one point, Ed and John Wayne Gacy actually did a satellite interview talking about their crimes together. Oh, Christ. These fucking guys are just sitting behind bars just fucking Why? reminiscing and, and having all this fucking nostalgia mm-hmm. talking about their fucking crimes that they committed, My killing these God. women and men and children. Ed teaches computer science in prison. I don't know if he still is, but he has. Mm-hmm. He also enjoys answering fan mail. I fucking hate that. Mm-hmm. Fan mail? Yeah. The FBI profiling program they have been using information from ed to help them identify other serial killers for decades now mm-hmm. which is the only good thing that has came out of right. this bullshit man's bullshit shit that he did his family like distant family like ed's ed's family are worried about him getting out one day it's a very real logical fear for them and mm-hmm. i completely understand why yeah um and just to briefly go back over ed kemper's victims Maud Kemper, Ed Kemper, Mary Ann Pesh, Anita Luchessa, Iko Ko, Cindy Shaw, Rosalind Thorpe, Alice Liu, Glarnell Strandberg, and Sally Hallett. And that is Ed Kemper. Crazy. In a nutshell, you guys. 
If you guys haven't seen Mindhunter, fucking watch it. Tori hasn't seen it. And I this still is like haven't. cardinal sin of a true yeah. crime podcast host. Mm-hmm. I still have You've not. You've got to watch it. The guy who plays Ed Kemper is so fucking yeah. good. Cameron, Cameron Britton, I think. When I was doing my research for this episode, I saw a lot of like side by side pictures uh-huh. of the two of them. So fucking good. It's crazy how uncanny they yeah. look. You have homework? I have homework. So, I did try and start watching Mindhunter when I was pregnant, but I was having a lot of anxiety then. Yeah. Are you reading, watching, or listening to anything else? Mm, I am not watching anything. Listening, nothing. Actually, I just got an <laughs> audiobook, but I don't know what it's called. Like, but I haven't. Nothing, nothing, and nothing. <laughs> I, I haven't really started it yet, so we'll probably talk about that next week. And, oh, Burning Muses, which is J.R. Rogue's book. It's mm-hmm. free right now. Oh, mm-hmm. hey. And I think the second one is 99 cents. If I might be wrong about that. And the third one releases in August this month. But you need to get them. Go grab the first two because the third one is coming out. I started Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia. Uh huh. My husband bought it for me for my birthday last month because I wouldn't shut up about it. Oh, sure. Um, so fucking good, you guys. It's like a gothic suspense horror eerie creepy story set in 1950s mexico and what is it called mexican gothic mexican Gothic. so fucking good it's one of those books that like you you don't do your other things that you need to do because you just get so engrossed and like the time slips away from you i'm watching fucking criminal minds um kemper on kemper listening i've actually been binging do you need a ride it's karen k karen kilgariff and chris yes. fairbanks right uh they're just funny it's lighthearted. are they still going out and having rides no so okay so their whole thing usually is picking up friends and like taking them to the airport or wherever right. they need to go or taking them home and it's usually other comics but since covid has like the globe and a chokehold they're just doing it's just karen and chris on skype um but it just makes me laugh and i enjoy it we've got new merch we no talked March. about that last week, but if you haven't looked, go look at crueltinkmedia.com. It's in the drop-down menu. It says cruel merch because just everything we do is fucking cruel, okay? <laughs> and don't fucking add us. Don't add us about it. Come on. If you want to send us an email, you can do that at cruelandunusualthepod at gmail.com. You can see our Instagram at cruelandunusualthepod. I tweet at cruelunusualpod. Oh my god. And Carmen tweeted us two hours ago. <laughs> it was right after we started this this recording. <laughs> oh Carmen. She um got her Patreon monthly postcard. Ooh. And I sent her the Edward Scissor the hand dessert. one. Oh yeah. Isn't he so that cute? Is cute. Oh, I love him. Johnny. Um this is what she said. Shout out to Cruel Unusual Pod for putting a big smile on my face. Oh Aww. I love that. I love her. Got an unexpectedly awesome card from them. Oh my god. You're so welcome. I'm retweeting this with a comment. I fucking love (laughs) mailing people shit. Thanks, Carmen, for putting that on there. Come join our Facebook group on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Cruel and unusual colon the group. We've got our Patreon. You can check that out, all the tiers, if you want to support us. I have two new episodes that I'll be recording for Patreon members only. Yes. Katie has one that is in the works as well. So, and if you... Just just to let you know, in case you don't know, if you become a Patreon tomorrow, you get access to everything that yeah. we've done on Patreon. It's not just like you join and you get from there on out. You get the archives, baby. 
And that's about it. That's all I have to fucking say. That's it. That's all. That's all she wrote. That's all she wrote. Okay, guys. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.